you know, there's always, um, you know, there's always a danger when you when you're tempted to celebrate a little bit too early. You ever done that? I, I want to show you a video, right? Where just, I, anyway, there's just a danger. Uh, just check this one out. <laughs> Good one, golly. <laughs> Just <laughs> Now, is, it, is this has this ever happened to you? No, this never happened to you. Are you sure? Oh, Pete, I think it has. I think we need to ask you afterwards. But it's true. There's there's always a danger in celebrating uh, too early and sort of thinking that you've arrived, thinking you've arrived at the goal, so to speak, uh, when you really haven't, and uh, thinking you've saved something when in fact you haven't. It sort of uh, took me back. Um, I don't know. If this has ever happened to you, once when I was playing football, I thought that the five metre line was the try line. <laughs> and so as I'm running towards the line and I dive and I sort of sort of slide and I've scored and I stand up and then my team's going, what are you doing? And then I get tackled over the sideline. And Anyway, I only scored two tries in my whole football career and so it could have been three. But there's a real danger in celebrating uh, too early. And I think, don't you think that's true sometimes in the Christian life? I think there's, there's often a tension in that we know what will be, so we know the promises of God that he has for us in the future and that have been guaranteed because of what Jesus has done. And yet there's this great tension between what will be and what we have now. right? And, and we constantly live in this tension between the now uh, and the not yet of what we, we have. And it's true that as we come to this point in Isaiah... There's definitely that feeling of um, tension, right? There's a chance that they'll be celebrating a little bit too early because as we get to this part of Isaiah, there's a massive reason for celebration, a massive reason for celebration. There's a, there's a good reason for it. Isaiah, at this point, is prophetically looking forward. He's looking forward to the day when God's people will be resettled back in Jerusalem. They'll rebuild the city. They'll rebuild the temple. It was something he prophesied about because it happened beyond his lifetime. And yet it's actually something that we've seen in history, right? Um, It happened 70 years after God's people were exiled in Babylon. They were returned to Jerusalem and the community of God's people that started to form back into that city, they started to start life back there again. And there was enormous excitement, right? Here's a verse that sort of captures... What's going on for them? It says, You will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided. The mountains and the hills will break into singing before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, a cypress will come up. And instead of the briar, a myrtle will come up. It it will make a name for Yahweh as an everlasting sign that will never be destroyed. Um, But this sort of sense of celebration that they're having is a little bit 
uh, premature. It's a little bit too early. It's sort of like celebrating the goal when, <laughs> uh, or saving the goal when in fact you really hadn't saved it. Because when they get back to Jerusalem and Judea, it wasn't what they'd expected. Right? The Persian Empire was in control, uh, had been in control of that area, and so it wasn't what they'd hoped for. There was a tension between the people who were coming back and the people who had lived in the land while they'd been in exile in Babylon. And so there was uh, tension between nations and they had to work out how to deal with that. But the biggest tension they had to live with is, I think, the same as the biggest tension that we've got to live with as Christians. They're living between the now and the not yet of God's promises. Their celebration in coming home was a little bit too early. You know, the glorious age of the prophets that Isaiah had spoken of when they would resettle in, in Zion and it would be magnificent. They come back and it's just, well, it's a little bit disappointing. And in a sense, their time is like ours. Because we live between the first coming of Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection and he's promised everything to come. And yet we haven't experienced the second coming of Jesus yet. And so we live in this tension. We know what's coming and we know it's guaranteed because of what he's done. But um, we don't have it yet. And if we're wondering, does Isaiah's time that he's speaking of in Isaiah 56 sound very much like our time? There's a very good reason for that. Because this is our time. Because Isaiah 53, remember last week? was when the suffering servant had died, he suffered, he was exalted in his resurrection. Isaiah 65, 66, that's next week, will be the new heavens and the new earth. And that's our time. We live smack bang between the work of the servant and the new heavens and the new earth. And so Isaiah 56, whilst it does speak to those initially who returned to Jerusalem, it speaks to us. Isaiah 56 is about 2013. Well, not specifically. It's about every year that's existed since 33 AD. We live right smack bang in this time. And so what is Isaiah 56 about? It's about what does God want his community, us as a group of people, to be like while we wait for what is to come? What does he want us to be like? And I guess three. be wary of three things. And the first one is he wants us to be a community marked by justice. And we talked about this at Invest, and I was really glad that we got to do that. But have a look at verse 1 of Isaiah 56, where to be a community marked by justice. Have a look. It says, This is what the Lord says. Preserve justice and do what is right, for my salvation is coming soon, and my righteousness will be revealed. So the Lord's day of salvation, perfect justice is coming. And what Isaiah is pointing forward to, he's pointing forward to the day when Jesus will sit on his throne and he will put right everything that is wrong in this world. That'll be a beautiful day, won't it? Won't it be a beautiful day when all corruption will be made right, will be ended? Won't it be a beautiful day when all the poor of our cities won't be poor anymore? Won't it be wonderful when those who are hurting in our cities because of injustice won't be hurting anymore. Right? That's the day. That's the day of God's salvation. Won't it be wonderful when Jesus' name is honoured by everyone, when his righteousness is revealed? Won't that be a beautiful day? Well, that's the day of the future. And so Isaiah says, if that's what we're looking forward to, then shouldn't we be a people of justice 
right now? And in fact, wasn't it injustice that led Israel to being in exile in the first place? Do you, do you remember what Isaiah said way back in chapter 2? Have a look at this. This, um, this verse from Isaiah 2. He says, Woe to those, this is what he said to the nation, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and who are fearless at mixing beer, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of justice. Basically what Isaiah is saying is that Friday night drinks in Israel were fantastic. But you could also pay off the judge to make sure that the guilty got off. The other thing he was saying is that home brew kits were sold, they were just flying out the supermarket, right? But as far as enthusiasm for caring for the poor, well, those, that sort of enthusiasm wasn't the same as the enthusiasm for mixing beer or mixing wine. And so what Isaiah is saying is that if that was 100 years ago in Israel, mass injustice as the lucky country, as God's people walked away from him, and now you're this new generation back in Jerusalem, having woken up from the nightmare of the last hundred years, what are you going to do? Are you going to be a community of justice when you're resettled back in my land? Are you going to be... What did Kevin Rudd say that we should be on Monday night at Q&A? A light on the hill? A city on the hill? And then he totally misquoted the Bible? which sort of did a lot of credit to his quote from Jesus at that point, but that's exactly what we're meant to be. Our life is meant to be a visible representation that God's kingdom of perfect justice is coming. In a sense, the city needs to know they need to feel our presence as Christians in the area of justice. Do you think our city feels that? Do you reckon they do? I reckon they do. On a massive scale, when we vote yesterday, not based on the party who's going to give us the most amount of money, but the party who's actually going to do justice in this city and care for the neglected and to make sure that the city is, and our country is run properly, when we don't vote on self-interest but on justice, do you think our, our city notices it? Of course. But I, I don't think it's just the macro decisions, the big decisions, the government decisions that show whether we're a community of justice. Don't you think it's the tiny things, the little things, the everyday things that show whether we're a community of justice? Have a look at verse 2. It's individuals. It says, Happy is the man who does this, that is justice, anyone who maintains this, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who keeps his hand from doing any evil. See, what does that mean? It might surprise you that Isaiah, he links the keeping of the Sabbath with doing justice, and we wonder what is that, how do those two things relate? That wouldn't have surprised anyone in Jerusalem because when they arrived back into the land in Jerusalem, what did they need to do? They needed to re-establish their businesses, they needed to re-establish their farming, they needed to continue to work out life in the city. And what it meant was the Sabbath day, it was a day of rest. And it was a day not just for the owners of businesses to rest, it was a day for the workers to rest. It was a day for the animals to rest. It was the day for foreigners who worked for you to rest. And so it was a way of ensuring that the Sabbath protected people who worked. I'm not saying that the Sabbath was a proto-union movement. That's not what I'm saying. 
but it stopped greedy bosses from taking advantage of their workers and it made sure that everyone had a day off. But it was much more than that. The Sabbath was actually a day that looked back to the day when God rested after he had created everything. And the Sabbath looked forward to the day when we will rest in God's presence forever, when all of his work at the end of time will have been completed. And so every time we take a day off from work, do you know what we're doing? We're looking forward to the day when we will rest in God's presence forever. It's a demonstration that we trust him. But it's actually the little decisions that we make that show whether or not we're a community that cares about justice. What does Isaiah say? Happy is the man who keeps his hand away from evil. What does that mean? Well, I guess this week, happy is the man who doesn't join in the joke about the short-statured people. Did you remember that? You know the AFL team? Did you hear about that? Right? Who hired a short-statured person and set him alight and thought it was funny. Friends, it... Happy is the person who keeps their hand away from laughing at that. Happy is the man who, you know when someone needs accommodation in our congregation and you give it to them? That's justice. right? Happy is the person who, you know when someone is sick in our congregation and they can't get through the basic, just the normal patterns of life and you step in as as a small group and you help him out? That's justice. Happy are you. Any of... Some of you here are bosses, yeah? Happy are you when you restrain from working your workers unfairly and you give them time off when they need it. That's doing justice. I mean, happier we aren't we when, you know where the question of marriage comes up at work or at uni and the question of same-sex marriage? And you say, no, 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 the, the reason why God says that marriage needs to be between a man and a woman One of the reasons is to protect children. Because every children deserves the opportunity to be raised, if possible, by their mother and their father. That's doing justice when you defend those that the Bible defends by defending marriage in the way that we do. But we don't celebrate too early. We don't go, we're a community of justice, and then start running off going, ah, perfect justice is going to be sorted. No, because we know that it won't be sorted perfectly until Jesus comes again. But we're meant to be a community of justice. The second thing Isaiah talks about, do you see it in verse 3 there? We're meant to be a community marked by inclusion. A community marked by inclusion. Look at verse 3. It says, No foreigner, no non-Israelite, no Gentile, who has joined himself to the Lord, should say, The Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, Look, I'm a dried up tree. Um, we're meant to be a community marked by inclusion. Um, isn't it the worst feeling in the world to be excluded? Have you ever been excluded? Can I tell you my worst exclusion moment? Right? Do you promise to not pick on me afterwards? All right? I was in year 10. Okay? I went to New Caledonia for a French excursion. Good French excursion. Yeah. So we went. There was 20 of us. And uh, great excursion. We, we got there, we got to the airport. They, they made a few mistakes, our teachers. Uh, they didn't realise that the drinking age in, in, uh, there was 16, and we're all 16, and so that was a big mistake. But anyway, that's another story that I'll tell you another day. But we got there, and my best mate and I were there. 
And uh, anyway, we had an argument. Uh, I can't remember what it was about, but uh, we, we sort of didn't get on. All of a sudden, he decided he'd do something so great. They were all going to the city that day, and the bus left at 10 a.m. And, and I didn't know what time it left, and I asked him, and he said, 10.30. And so I roll up in another country, and everyone else had left. And I don't know what the teachers were doing, but anyway. <laughs> and the whole day on your own, is this anything like this ever happened to you? And you know the feeling of exclusion. I don't know if there's a worse feeling in the world than that. And uh, some of you perhaps bullied all the time and you felt this a lot in your life, right? Thankfully, uh, my, new, my uh, new Caledonia experience wasn't always what happened. But that is not us as God's people. We're a community of inclusion, not exclusion. Right? And the book of Isaiah has trained us to think this way, that the transformation of Zion is not complete until foreigners benefit, until the nations flock in. Look at verse 3 again. It says this. It says, No foreigner, no non-Israelite, no Gentile who has joined himself to the Lord, no one should say, The Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, Look, I'm a dried up tree. Now, just some context for that, just in case you're wondering. The law of Moses in Deuteronomy 23 said that some people from some nations and eunuchs couldn't participate in worship in the temple. A eunuch is a man whose testicles have been crushed or his penis has been cut off. Right, Straight quote from Deuteronomy 23. Now, could you imagine what it would be like to be excluded from God's people? Other nations and eunuchs were excluded. But you know often why that might happen? Someone might become a eunuch because in the pagan cults, sometimes they made people eunuchs as part of the worship. And Isaiah actually talks about how in Babylon, where they'd just been in exile, that some people, perhaps from the royal family, were made eunuchs by the people of Babylon. So could you imagine how they felt when they came back to resettle in Jerusalem? They are eunuchs. These men will never have children and no one will ever carry their name ever again because of what happened to them. And yet, what is the promise that God makes? Look at verse 4. Look what he says. For the Lord says this, For the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. And that play on words is deliberate. You know, what won't be cut off, and these men would have been aware of things that have been cut off, but what would not be cut off is their name that God would give them, even though they would never have children. They were included in, God, in God's people, not excluded. And the point of this is, is that no matter what background, no matter what nation you come from, no matter what religion you've been part of in the past, no matter what, if you turn to God, you have a place in my house, he says, and you have a place behind my walls if you turn to me. That's a beautiful thing. Look at verse 6. This is our community. Look at verse 6. It says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord minister to him, love the name of Yahweh, and become his servants, 
all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold firmly to my covenant. In other words, anyone who genuinely comes to, to God, this is the promise, verse 7, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar and my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. God is saying, my mountain, Zion, is for all nations. This temple is for all nations. Anyone who comes to offer prayers from any nation can come and offer them. And friends, do you know that that is the age that we live in? The age of the gospel going out. The age of people hearing about Jesus from the nations and being drawn in to him. Now, when do we see this passage fulfilled? A foreigner and perhaps a eunuch um, coming to God. Can you think of a... Can you think of a time in the Bible? Shout it out. In Acts. Okay, we're getting there. Adam, you're allowed to speak up at this point. Yeah. Yeah, Acts. All right, we're getting closer. Right? Acts where? Acts chapter 8. Good on you, Larissa. Okay, and from what nation is this guy from? Ethiopia. Come over to Acts chapter 8. Can everyone turn to Acts chapter 8? This is a beautiful moment. Don't you think? This is the day of the gathering of the nations. Have a look at Acts chapter 8. This is a remarkable story. I love this story. Acts chapter 8. Flick pages, flick your iPad, whatever you've got to do. Get to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Here we go. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. He said, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. Right? This used to be the Wayne Swan of Ethiopia, but I'm not sure who the new treasurer will be. It will be Joe Hockey of Ethiopia. He had come to worship in Jerusalem. Why he'd done that, we don't know. And he was sitting in a chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. And then verse 29, have a look. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. Right? Wouldn't you love it if someone who was ripe to hear about Jesus and God spoke in your ear and said, go and talk to him. Right? That does it, that's never happened to me. I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but it happened here. And what does Philip do? Look at verse 30. When Philip ran up to the chariot... He heard him, can you believe this, reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? And I think, I've been preaching Isaiah for eight weeks and I don't understand what I'm reading. Of course you need someone who understands. I think I've got a rough idea. But look at verse 31. What, what does the Ethiopian eunuch say? He says, how can I? He said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him in the chariot. Now, the scripture passage he was reading was this. And can you believe it? It was Isaiah 53 that we looked at last week. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Okay, now quick pop quiz. If you sat in a chariot with someone who had Isaiah 53 open and it was open at the point he was led like a sheep to the slaughter 
and he said, what does this mean? What would you say? It's about Jesus. <laughs> and it's about what about Jesus? It's about his death. See, you guys know exactly what to do. Look, look at verse 34. The eunuch replied to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about? Himself or another person? And so Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning from that scripture. An African eunuch hears about the suffering servant Jesus and comes into God's kingdom. Isaiah 56 is fulfilled. This is what he's talking about. And isn't this the picture of what God talks about will happen in the future, in the new heavens and the new earth, when people from every tribe and every language and every nation will be worshipping at the throne? Won't there be people who grew up in Australia, who grew up as Buddhists and speak Mandarin and then later in life turn to Jesus and they'll be there? Won't there be people who are followers of Allah and speak Arabic and grew up in our area and later turn to Jesus and they'll be there, won't they? Won't there be people who grew up in Cronulla and speak Shire, <laughs> Right? which is that weird hobbit language that they speak out in the back of the surf, right? Do you, know that, do you know they'll be there? They will be there. Do you know that there'll be people from Tanzania who grew up with African traditional religion? And we've got Glenn here tonight. He's back home visiting us, um, missionary from Tanzania. There'll be people there on the last day who were worshipping under African traditional religion. They will turn to Jesus and they will be there. Won't there be people who grow up atheists because the communist country that they grew up in precluded them from learning about Jesus? And they'll hear about Jesus and they'll be there. They're the people of the nations on God's holy mountain serving in his temple, welcomed and included. Friends, how does that happen? Do you want me to tell you how it happens? This is how it happens. You go up to someone like the Ethiopian eunuch and you sit with them at lunchtime at work or at uni on the library lawn. And you accidentally, oops, oh, the Bible fell over in Isaiah 53. And they say, what are you reading? Oh, I'm just reading about this guy. This is led like a lamb to the slaughter. And do you, know, do, you know, do you know that's about Jesus who suffered for your sins? And he rose again to give you the promise of eternal life. That's how it happens, right? And that might be you. You might have been the person who felt excluded from God's people but now you're included as someone is proclaiming Jesus to you. And I'm really glad that you're here. Because you know how as a congregation we know that we get this, that we really get it? Is that when we feel totally dissatisfied that our congregation doesn't quite represent the cultural diversity of our area. When we feel dissatisfied about that, because we're getting there, right? We're growing. People from many different cultures are in this room tonight hearing about Jesus. Some for whom English is your first language, some for whom English is your second language or your third language. And it's wonderful. But you know what? We're getting there, but we're not there yet. And we don't represent our area yet. And if you're not feeling dissatisfied about that, then we don't quite get this passage because this building is far from full. Um, look at verse 8. Look what Isaiah says. This is the declaration of the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel, I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. There's many, many, many more people to come. You know, the other way that we'll know that we get this is that some of us will go. 
Glenn went. He went to Tanzania. And you know, a few weeks ago, I know that some of you came back. You were in Vanuatu on a mission. And you said to me, straight after the mission, you said this. You said, after school, I'm going to go back to Vanuatu and I'm going to be a missionary there. Do you know what shows that we get this? Is whether you go and do it. Leave school, get some education, get some training in the Bible, and go. Go to the nations, people. That's where we need to go. People need to hear about the Lord Jesus. That shows whether we get this. That, what does it say in verse 8? God says, I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. We're about including people in the kingdom as we proclaim Jesus. We're also a just community. But Isaiah, he warns us at this point the final thing. He says this. He says, do you know that the number one threat to Christian community in these last days as the gathering of God's people happens is dodgy leaders? The number one threat to this growth is dodgy <coughs> leaders. There's a massive change of tone. Have a look at verse 9 of this passage. Have a look what he warns us of. It says, All you animals of the field and the forest, come and eat. Israel's watchmen... That is, their leaders, their shepherds are blind, all of them. They know nothing. All of them are mute dogs. They cannot bark. They dream, lie down, and love to sleep. Basically, what Isaiah is saying is that the rot is going to set in in Israel again. And do you know where it's going to come from? It's going to come right from the heart, right from the leaders of Israel. The very people who were meant to be Israel's watchmen, their shepherds, their pastors, who were meant to guide them and protect them and watch over them and teach them properly, and they will fall asleep. They'll choose instead to live a life and to preach messages that make people feel comfortable and nice and what the culture wants them to hear, instead of preaching messages that make people feel uncomfortable and a little bit different to what our culture wants us to hear. Because if shepherds aren't going to warn people about false teaching coming into the church, who are? And Isaiah points forward to this day when there's going to be an outright assault on God's people from outside of the church. And what's going to happen? They're going to be left with leaders who are weak and who are cowardly and who are careless and who are slothful and who are drunkards and who fail to lead the flock. They allow themselves to fall asleep on the job. And these leaders, they don't fall asleep on the job because they're tired and they're working really hard. They fall asleep on the job because they'd rather go to sleep than actually deal with the pressures that are coming towards them. Can I say that this happens all the time? All the time, and this is exactly what Phil was talking about before. Because very few leaders, religious leaders, want to give a hard message. Most want to give a soft message. And very few people, like us, want to hear a hard message. And the worst thing that a shepherd can do is fall asleep. Or anyone here, oh, none of our army guys are here tonight, but... If you're a watchman in the army, what's the worst thing? When you're at watch at night, what's the worst thing that you could do? Fall asleep, right? If you're a dog and you're meant to be a guard dog, 
What's the worst possible thing you, if you don't do what? It's a problem. If you don't bark, right? And that's the shepherds here. That, you see the multiple metaphors, right? They're, the, they're meant to be the ones who are vigilant and looking after the sheep, and yet they don't bark, they don't do anything, they fall asleep, they're drunk, they're self-interested, they don't care. The place of strength of God's people becomes a place of weakness. They don't only care about themselves. Look at verses 11 and 12, how God describes what will happen. These dogs have fierce appetites. They never have enough. And they are shepherds who have no discernment. All of them turn to their own way, every last one for his own gain. Come, let me get some wine. Let's guzzle some beer. And tomorrow will be like today, only far better. Right? These drunk shepherds are either too gutless or too self-interested and they leave the flock open to be swallowed by wolves. Have you ever seen a wolf attack a sheep? You ever seen it? You imagine what happens? Tears it apart. And they either leave the sheep either half dead or dead, just lying on the ground. Have you ever seen it? I've seen it. Because you know what? Wolves write books. They do. And I'm not afraid of ideas. Uh, in fact, ideas are great. And books are great. I, I read like a crazy man, right? And I'm not afraid of different ideas either. But uh, false, unbiblical ideas that lead people away from Christ. That is what I'm afraid of. And that will tear you apart. And so how do I prepare you for that? Can, can I stop false ideas, you hearing them? As your shepherd, can I stop that from happening? No. So, but how do I protect you when you get hit? Well, as I help you to know this. Because when you know the Bible, and then a false or dodgy teacher comes your way, either on the internet or a book or wherever it might be, Right, and you hear their dodgy idea and you know the Bible well, all of a sudden things are going off in your mind and you go, that's not right. That's not right. That is a false teaching. And that's exactly why Phil needs to go to GAFCON because the Anglican Church throughout the world has been sliding into liberalism for, for some time and they've been denying the authority of the Bible and denying the clear teaching of the Scriptures. And isn't this the same when Jesus went into the temple courts and he drove out those? Remember, remember in John's Gospel, he's got a whip. Jesus comes into the temple and those who are selling uh, doves for profit in the court of the Gentiles and he drives them out. Why does he do that? Because he's so angry. He's angry that the place where the nations were meant to come and gather amongst God's people in the outer courts of the temple was being used by leaders to fill their own pockets. And so he comes in with a whip and he drives them out. But do you know what else I think he's unhappy about? I think he's unhappy that there are self-interested leaders who are tearing people away from the truth. And I think he would do exactly the same thing today. He would come with a whip and he would come into some of the churches throughout the world and he would say, how can you allow a practicing homosexual man to be consecrated as a bishop in my church and he'd have a whip in his hand 
and he'd have a whip in his hand and he'd say, how can you deny that I am risen from the dead and call yourself a Christian? And how can you deny that I'm risen from the dead and call yourself a bishop? And he wouldn't put down his whip because he'd be angry. And you know what else he'd be angry with? The watchmen, the other church leaders who were doing what? They were asleep. And they were guzzling their wine and having their nice dinner parties. And yet the gospel churches were being emptied because the gospel was lost as liberalism slides into the church. That's why we need Phil to go to Kenya, to stand side by side with men throughout the world who will stand for biblical truth. Because we love our city too much to compromise on the truth. And not only that, we love our city so much that we want to be a community of justice. And we love our city so much that we want to include them in God's kingdom. And so we proclaim the gospel to them, just like the Ethiopian eunuch. But as we do that, we need to watch out for false teachers, self-interested shepherds. Why don't I pray? Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the book of Isaiah. We thank you that it, it points so clearly to what Jesus has done and points so clearly to the promises of what is to come, the day of perfect justice, the day of salvation. And Father, we look forward to that day and we pray you would help us to be a community that is just and cares about justice and pursues justice as we wait for Jesus to come. Father, we pray you would help us to be an inclusive community that is willing to be part of your mission to see people from all nations come to know you. Father, please give us a heart for the nations, and I pray that there would be some here that would go to other nations to proclaim the gospel. But Father, we also know that there will be poor leadership in your church in the last days. There will be shepherds who will fall asleep on the job. And so wolves will come in and attack the sheep with no protection. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in churches throughout the world who are led badly and who are taught falsely. Father, we pray that they would find churches that teach the Bible properly. Father, give us a great humility in this. But Father, also give us great courage to stand for the truth in the midst of a culture sometimes that doesn't want to hear it. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.